Welcome to our 11th Cows on the Planet podcast. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I'm from the University of Lethbridge. I've been a beef researcher for ages, and before that on my family farm, but I've been enjoying learning from our guests as we go along. My co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, Principal Scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge. Our topic today is, does regenerative agriculture include cattle? I have to say that I'm a little bit unsure right now about regenerative agriculture, as it seems at first glance like new and improved marketing for some old ideas, but it would not be the first time it took me a little bit of time to see the light. Is there any illumination in particular that you are looking forward to, Tim, in our discussions today? Yeah, Kim, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how beef cattle fit into regenerative agriculture. Most of the information I've heard are, is mainly around cropping practices like intercropping and cover cropping and how those practices can improve soil health. But I'm really interested in hearing from Martin whether he thinks integrative livestock cropping systems can play a role, particularly with beef cattle in regenerative agriculture. Our guest today is Dr. Martin Entz, Professor of Cropping Systems and Natural Systems Agriculture at the University of Manitoba. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Martin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yes, we're thrilled to have you as our guest. So as your first question, just to warm you up, how does someone become Professor of Cropping Systems and Natural Systems Agriculture? What were some of your paths and forks along the road to getting there? Well, I sort of defined the title myself. The University of Manitoba did not advertise this position in the way that I now describe it. I got a PhD in agronomy and drought physiology from the University of Saskatchewan. So I come from a pretty traditional agronomic background where we look at making crop production as efficient as possible. You know, very much like our animal science colleagues work in the animal sector to improve the efficiency of that production system. I had worked for four years in industry in different places in Canada, and I have an undergraduate degree from the university where I now teach at the University of Manitoba. And as a first generation Canadian with my families from East Germany, always a lot of talk about sort of historical crop rotations and although... So, you know, that interested me. And then I I have to say that I've always been interested in farming systems and how farmers respond to things, so how they adapt. And I had a chance to interact with the Land Institute in Kansas uh, during my PhD, and that exposed me to Wes Jackson and his ideas about natural systems agriculture. So, you know, that's kind of how I got here. So when I started at the University of Manitoba, I was really interested in how were we integrating crops and livestock to improve the overall system? And, you know, and, and so anyway, that, that's enough about that. That's how I got here. And I've had a wonderful several decades of research and student training and teaching in this area. Well, thank you, Martin. You sound like someone after my own heart that gives themselves their own job title and just makes it what they want. That's, that's always the way to go in science, at least in, in my opinion. 
Thanks. <laughs> so, Martin, there, there there seems to be a number of different definitions for what regenerative agriculture is. Like I mentioned, cover crops, sequestering carbon, a number of components there. And and whenever I hear terms like regenerative agriculture, I always can't help but think about the opposite practice, which I guess in this case would be degenerative agriculture. And and whenever you say you're bringing up something that's positive like regenerative agriculture it kind of implies that what we're practicing now is degenerative agriculture so is that the case and how does regenerative agriculture really differ from what we've been doing for quite some time well you are correct tim in the sense that what we now are calling regenerative agriculture is really principles and practices that have been used for a long time so if we look at cover crops for example now we call them cover crops 25 years ago, we called them annual forages, which we would sometimes graze. So, you know, I, I, I guess when I think about your concern about, you know, using a term like this and how it may shine a negative light on what we're doing now, I mean, that's always a challenge when you're trying to make innovation. I don't think anybody in the regenerative agriculture movement is trying to degrade the current production system. They're trying to build on it. You know, I would say because it really started out as a farmer movement, that gives it a lot of credibility. So when we think about, when I think about those farmers that I've seen really push this idea, people like Gabe Brown in North Dakota uh, with his, you know, From Dirt to Soil book, I think if people look at that as a sort of an example of the movement of regenerative agriculture, then it becomes really inclusive, both in terms of, like you said, Tim, the ideas of the past and some new ideas like really exploring, you know, mixtures of plants for grazing, for example. So I guess a big part of this could be also sort of getting producer adoption of some of these methods or practices that have been around for quite a long time and, and, and just getting a broader adoption of those within the agricultural industry. Absolutely. I think if there's one thing that I am critical of in our current agricultural paradigm is the lack of investment in farmers through really high quality extension, really high quality education for people operating farms and ranches and whatever other agricultural enterprise. I would also say that maybe each generation needs its own definition of moving forward. <laughs> and so my generation might have had sustainable agriculture. You know, the new gen, a lot of people involved in the regenerative agriculture movement are mixed farms uh, who are using their livestock in maybe people like us who've been around for a while may not consider them completely novel ideas, but for the new generation of people on the land, they are maybe new. And I think if that gets them excited and gets them to meetings to talk about these things, that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I can see that. Ultimately, it's the producers that have an impact on the agricultural practices. The scientists can do the research and make recommendations in that, but if they're not adopted, then they're not, they're not going to have any influence on agriculture or contribute to food security. So I think those are good points, Martin. And, you know, it also, once people step out, like my research area for a long time has been organic agriculture, and it's not because I like to denigrate conventional agriculture. It's just because I thought as a scientist, we're actually learning a lot when we take some of the fertilizers and pesticides out of the system. It really forces us to think differently and it really forces us to think about the role of livestock. But I'll maybe end this sort of my thoughts on 
what is regenerative agriculture with a quote from my mentor, Wes Jackson from the Land Institute, who likes to argue that we need to think about conservation as a consequence of production. So can we design production systems that by their very nature allow some of the positive things about ecosystem management to occur? And uh, so that for me is a very good definition of regenerative agriculture. Thank you, Martin. We are cows on the planet. So we're most interested in what relationship regenerative agriculture would have with cattle. So are livestock a necessary part of regenerative agriculture, or are they just an attractive accessory that you can bring out once in a while? Yeah, I mean, my short answer is yes, most definitely. I guess if we look at a regenerative backyard garden, well, that may not require a ruminant right in the system. But we may want to use some of that ruminant manure in that backyard garden. So there is even a connection there. In terms of if we look at our larger scale agriculture on the prairies, I think not only the scientific literature, but the farm experience has shown that livestock play a critical role in all sustainable type farming systems. If we go right to the economics of the system, I have seen data where we look at sort of deficiency payments or whatever we call them, sort of crop insurance payments or different government subsidies to farmers when things are tough. And we know that the payments to integrated crop livestock farmers are on balance a lot lower than payments to farmers who are specialized in, let's say, just grain production. And so I think that's really that data which has been collected over decades, shows that there's an economic incentive to integrate ruminant like cattle into farming systems. So can you describe a few of the ways that cattle, like what are cattle doing in a regenerative agriculture system? Well, when we look at Gabe Brown's example, and, you know, I remember being in Edmonton at the, I think the first soil health conference that we had on the prairies and Gabe Brown was a speaker and I I was fortunate to be a speaker there and Gabe was telling his story that and maybe I'll just share that quickly he and his family you know really didn't inherit a lot of farmland they started with minimal farmland in in western North Dakota Uh, not very good farmland it had been quite degraded and so they started growing a lot of forages doing a lot of cattle grazing using annual forage mixtures, which I think any ruminant nutritionist would be really interested in, like a a diversity of diet, a diversity of plants. And they've really made a lot of progress on restoring their soils. So the cattle were an integral part of restoration of that land. And that book, I think it's called Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown, is quite popular and and I think it's it's it really makes a lot of practical sense. And so there's just an example of how the ruminants help to facilitate a crop rotation, how the ruminants, how the cattle help to allow that farmer to grow crops which would enrich the soil and give an economic return. And since then, like as a scientist, we now know that actually just, and this as kind of counterintuitive as it seems, if we actually graze plants with herbivores like beef cattle, It can, if it's done properly, it can actually stimulate the root growth of the plant and cause that plant to release more carbon into the soil system. And so there's a lot of good studies to support that proper grazing management 
will allow crops, perennials and annuals to leave more carbon for the soil. And there's even Canadian literature on that. So that's just one example, Kim, of how the animals can help. Another really quick example, just working on organic agriculture, and this may not apply to most of the listeners, but weeds are defined. They're just plants that are growing where we don't want them. And weeds in a lentil crop are a problem, but many weeds are very digestible by ruminants. And so uh, ruminants, cattle are very important. And I remember when we started having herbicide-resistant wild oats, I was talking to a farmer in near Daysland, Alberta, who was starting to put silage crops on their herbicide-resistant wild oat fields. And, you know, they could cut the wild oats when they were flowering and put them in the pit and feed them in the winter. And it really did help with control of those weeds. So those are just a couple of examples. Those are cool examples. Yeah, I think that's interesting, Martin. We had just done a little bit of work on kochia as a forage source, which is a horrible weed, as we know, is Roundup ready resistant and causes lots of problems. But when you look at it from a nutrient perspective, it's pretty good feed for cattle. So there could be some potential there. I'm, I'm wondering, one of the big parts about obviously sustainability from a farmer's perspective is economic sustainability. And I wonder if you see regenerative agricultural practices contributing to farmers' incomes. I know Cargill's starting up a program to pay farmers based on soil carbon sequestration. Maybe some other corporations are going to jump on that bandwagon as well. Do you see a future where farmers will be fairly compensated for these types of environmental stewardship practices or is it solely going to be based on the amount of yields or the amount of meat they can produce within those land areas in terms of determining their their economic profitability? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think there is an easy answer to that question. I guess I would have a question back is what percentage of the farmer's income would come from that premium from, for example, Cargill I mean, we do see other food companies now involved in this. General Mills, the maker of you know Cheerios, they have a large program trying to document how different regenerative practices will improve biodiversity. And so I guess they're thinking about how they're going to brand this in the future. So obviously with the Cargill example, it's already happening and General Mills is interested in it. So likely, you know, all that would signal that it's going to happen. I believe farmers should be paid for providing ecological goods and services wherever that extra cash comes from. You know, that's outside of my area of expertise. So that's the first part of the answer to that question. Uh, And you may have a, a, you might want to probe a bit deeper into any particular uh, practice that you might be thinking about. Well, one of the things I'm wondering, like if is a lot of that, what we're talking in regenerative agriculture is around the concept of, of carbon sequestration. I'm wondering, like if there was compensation for that, it might change one of the biggest land use change practices that result in the emission of carbon, which is the conversion of pasture land or native grassland to croplands. And whether that you see that as a possibility of reversing that trend, because as it is now, I think when producers do the math, they often come up with the conclusion that they can make more money off of that land by planting it to crops than they can by grazing cattle. Yeah, that's a really good point, Tim. It's a real shame to see that farmland conversion out of grassland to grains. It's okay if somewhere else on the farm, they're putting grassland back in a perennial forage. But we know that from long-term studies on the prairies, of course, that perennials in the cropping system, in the rotation, do add more carbon, not only in the surface layers, but also in the deeper layers, down to, you know, 60 centimeter, down to two and three feet. 
So if we remove those perennials, that's a problem. So what can we do in regenerative agriculture to turn that around? Is there anything that we can do? Well, I mean, one, uh, I had a grad student just recently finish a master's looking at grass-fed beef and dairy production. We did case studies in Manitoba and Ontario. And I have the the data here. We know that the average sort of cow-cow farm in the prairies has about 30% of their land base in perennials and probably not very different for a dairy farm. These grass-fed operations, beef ones had 60% of their land base in perennials and the dairy farms, which were all in Ontario, had 90 to 100% of their land base in perennials. And so that's what happens when we go to the grass-fed. Now, I know the ruminant nutritionists and, you know, the livestock greenhouse gas people don't, you know, necessarily support grass-fed because of more enteric emissions. But I think that, so we know how to sequester carbon, and that's with perennials. And, and, and that means uh, that means ruminants on the landscape. We know how to do that. And we know if we have good grazing management, we're going to maximize that carbon sequestration. And so we have a dilemma. Do we go grass fed where we have now more enteric emissions? Do we, you know, how do, how do we manage this balance? Well, I think what we're seeing now is that we know we're not going to carbon sequester ourselves out of our greenhouse gas problem. And the amount of greenhouse gases emitted from our food system, they are quite modest compared to many other activities in our society. So I'm willing to explore some of these systems that may deal with this tension, like grass finished, for example, and challenge the rest of our society to do their bit because farmers can't be asked to do everything. I mean, just as an example, we probably produce as many greenhouse gases in Canada in our recreational activities as we do in agriculture. So uh, that's a little controversial, but you know, I think it's a reality that we have to face. Martin, back on my family farm, livestock and crops were integrated And as soon as the field was harvested, the cattle were eager to vacuum up any leftover grain, chomp through the straw, leave behind some excellent manure as a soil amendment. But it basically required continuous year-round work in contrast to our strictly crop farming neighbors who headed off to Hawaii or Arizona for a good part of the winter while we were trying to chop a hole in the ice to water the cattle at minus 40. (laughs) No no bitterness there. (laughs) But with increased farm sizes and fewer farmers, is it realistic to expect increased integration in livestock and crops in the future? Great question. A couple of thoughts on this. The first one is we wrote a paper in 2007 on reconsidering crop livestock integration in North America. And uh, I did that with some American colleagues. And we looked at on-farm integration, and then we looked at area-wide integration. So we know that as farms get larger, it's more difficult to have on-farm integration of beef, cattle, and livestock. So is there, is there an opportunity to look more creatively at area-wide integration? So that's one thought. And I think we see examples of that. The second thought is the social aspect of that. I remember when my uncle, who was a pig farmer, had this sort of all in all out contract with whoever was buying the pigs. 
And he made an interesting comment. He said, you know, this kind of offers me an urban lifestyle because I can ship all my pigs and then I can actually keep the barn empty for three weeks if I want to go on a vacation. And so, you know, that's a reality because are we expecting our food producers to be tied to the farm all the time? So, yeah, what do we do with that? I mean, maybe if we restore rural communities and create, you know, to have agriculture become more cultural again, there may be some wiggle room. And I see young people getting involved in agriculture. I mean, we see an expansion of small farms in Canada, right? And a lot of these young people have livestock because that really helps the economics of those farms. And I see a lot of these young farmers being very happy and they're very happy in their place. They're happy to raise their kids on the farm in those integrated systems. But those are small farms, okay? So we have to recognize, and they may become big farms and then they may become very specialized. One example of area-wide integration that I use in my classes is Lethbridge Biogas. And now I have never visited Lethbridge Biogas. I was going to, but COVID hit. And you live right there, so you may know more about them, of course, Kim. But, you know, there is an example of area-wide integration where they take, apparently, you know, manure from dairies, put it through an anaerobic digester, generate electricity from that, uh, you know, the electricity generation through anaerobic digestion, all that removed is the carbon and the hydrogen, the, the nutrients all stay in the digestate, that digestate makes very good fertilizer. That's just one small example of innovative area-wide integration that I think is pretty exciting. And I've seen that on small farms in Central America, but here we see it at a scale that kind of fits a lot of our type of agriculture. So not a great answer to your question. You know, can large-scale farmers integrate? Then you're asking neighbors to work together, and we addressed that in our paper, and and that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. It depends a lot on the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So Martin, cover crops seem to be a big part of the package. And I'm just wondering how do cover crops contribute to regenerative agriculture? And I've often heard that yields might be higher from monoculture cropping systems. So are the producers going to recover their investment from the use of cover crops in terms of the types of food products or feed products that they can produce from those crops? Yeah. You know, we have to define cover crops. I mean, uh, cover crops, we hear a lot about them from the Northeast United States and Ontario now because the soils there can be improved quite a bit by growing a late season cover crop. Just even if you don't graze it, even if you just leave it to add carbon to the soil, you know, we look at our dryland prairies and we've actually done some research to look at what areas of the prairies have the temperature and moisture resources after a grain crop to grow a cover crop. And there is some pretty big limitations there. So that's a problem with sort of reading a magazine article from Southern Ontario where they're using cover crops in no-till systems with corn and soybeans. And, you know, you want to do that in Medicine Hat on dry land and that's going to be a tough proposition. What I like about cover crops is the idea it, it forced, and that's maybe where the regenerative agricultural community has really coalesced their thinking, is how can we improve the soil health? How can we add more carbon to the soil? And how can we cycle that carbon? And if we look at cover crops and dryland areas, we're right back to you know those annual forages. We're right back to where we were in the discussion with Gabe Brown, where he's taking land 
and growing mixtures of what he calls cover crops uh, for livestock grazing as a way to enhance soil. So that's not, uh, you, you know, the question that you asked, Tim, was, you know, does intercropping reduce the total yield of crops? And we can increase the total biomass produced on an acre of land by growing mixtures, the correct mixtures in some cases. And we see an increase in use of, of intercropping. Back to my personal experiences, I've heard that Alan Savory, with his holistic management, forms one of the pillars of regenerative agriculture. And back in the 70s, my dad bought one of Savory's earlier books. He cross-fenced the crap out of our pastures and tried his best to go full holistic. But a lot of this was later abandoned due to limited water sources, difficult topography, and a dry climate making pasture regrowth unpredictable. And it also seemed a little bit like we'd stumbled into a religious sect that did not consider the ecological variability among grazing systems. So just wondering if regenerative agriculture can be better tailored to individual situations, because it seems like if there's just the one size or one plan, it doesn't always fit all. Your, your comments there. Yeah, I would comment that I agree with your sentiment that a one-size-fits-all solution is, we know, is not a really good approach. I mean, I think Alan Savory's gift to the grazing community was to point out that grazing management is important for sustaining natural ecosystems. I mean, I think that that's what he really did well in Africa with his early research. But in terms of then prescribing you know, time-controlled grazing, exactly the same in southern Ontario versus southern Alberta. I mean, that's just a bad idea because there's such different ecosystems. So regenerative agriculture, I think, and, and you know, I have to acknowledge, I haven't really defined, I haven't done my job helping you define regenerative agriculture because it's still kind of nebulous. And But if we think about the definition of conservation as a consequence of production, I think we can design grazing systems that provide good soil conservation and ecosystem conservation during the grazing process. And in fact, you know, Savory told us that grazing was actually quite critical to the maintenance of these ecosystems because that's how they evolved. The one thing I would say is that giving plants a rest period is one of the things that, you know, rotational grazing it does emphasize, and I think that is quite important because it allows those plants to grow those deeper root systems and drought-proof. And this year, there is a, a farmer in southwest Manitoba who has adopted the uh, twice-over grazing system, which many of your listeners may know about. It was developed at North Dakota State University, and it, it's really designed for uh, native rangelands, maybe more in the mixed-grass prairie than the short-grass prairie. And it involves going over the pasture quickly in June with a light graze and then coming back later on in August with a heavier graze. And it sort of fits the physiology of the plant. And that farmer, I phoned them in July just to see how they were doing with the drought. And they said, you know, they've been doing this for 20 years. And so it's paying off. It has allowed those plants to be healthier. So giving those plants rest is important. However, we, but there's many ways of doing that. And all those fences and all those watering pasture pipelines and all those things, they, they are a big investment. And and, and like you say, the topography can be challenging. So a one-size-fits-all is probably not a good idea, 
but embracing the principles of resting your plants and actually managing natural ecosystems with grazing, I think those principles really make a lot of sense and there's a lot of scientific evidence to support them. I would agree with you, Martin. Martin, climate change is a concern for all of us, especially with the weather swinging wildly from flood to drought and the smoke that we experienced in Western Canada this past summer as a result of forest fires. So I'm just wondering, does regenerative agriculture really play a role in terms of how we can still feed the planet while developing adaptation strategies for climate change? And you've talked about carbon sequestration, which we know is important in terms of drawing that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But is that the only thing that regenerative agriculture can do that may help us adapt to climate change? Yeah, I know. Uh, I, th- I think there's we also have to think about water. And I think water management is something that we all think about a lot on the prairies and in many other places in the world. So one example of the thinking, I think that has really been progressive, is that we now think more in terms of watersheds than in terms of townships. So, you know, the prairie was colonized and we had these square miles and we all appreciate them because we know how to find a farmyard. It's three miles from whatever, you know, and we have the section roads But that's not how the natural ecosystem works. It works in terms of watersheds. And we have a lot of watershed management groups around that deal with water conservation. And I think that's an important part of regenerative agriculture that we need to focus on. Certainly, the no-till revolution has made a big impact here. But so has grazing management. I mean, I, I always tell my students, you know, the grazing revolution has really transformed much of Western Canada. And it's really helped the hydrology, the water. And then there's the biodiversity, the birds and the bees, and all those things that we really rely on. Regenerative agriculture can help there. And again, there you're looking at integrated farming systems as having a huge advantage for doing that because you're dealing with perennial plants and you can change grazing management to enhance wildlife, uh, to enhance uh, waterfowl nesting. There's all kinds of options that you are afforded through having an animal agriculture that you are really challenged to find in a grain-based monoculture agriculture. I would add one thing, and maybe this this comes, you know, I, I want to talk a bit about efficiency. And I think we need to start working together more because I have a in my mind a picture of I'm an agronomist and I can spend all my time working on crop production efficiency, squeezing the last bushel out of the inch of water or out of the nitrogen that's applied to the crop. And uh, and I know my animal science colleagues, they're doing their work as well, looking at efficiency of feed. And now we know that high quality feed reduces the amount of methane coming out. And I think what regenerative agriculture is forcing us to do is to think about bringing those two efficiencies together. So for example, in crop production, so we have a few weeds. If we can consume them with livestock, then the crop production efficiency isn't that bad because the whole system is going to stay quite efficient. And I think you could think about examples with livestock as well. So if regenerative agriculture can allow us to imagine and explore options to bring crop and livestock together, then I think it makes a contribution to not only the climate change mitigation, but to many of our other problems like biodiversity loss and poor water management. Well, thank you, Martin. This has been an interesting interesting discussion and I've I've learned quite quite a bit and have a, a different perspective I think than than when we we started this podcast 
so Tim, we've heard about farmers being paid to store carbon in their soils and the integration of livestock and cropping systems as an important part of regenerative agriculture, but also a little bit about the confusion as to what regenerative agriculture is, is, is there seems to be a few different definitions. So what are your take-home points on what Martin had to say? Yeah, Kim. So I think Martin did a, a really good job of describing some of the benefits that regenerative agriculture can can provide to uh, agriculture communities. One of the big things I think is that I'd say the definition is still kind of nebulous. And the reason why I think it is nebulous is because it just means it's it's really practices or best management practices that are applied across the entire agricultural system. And because agricultural systems differ, the same regenerative agriculture practices are not implementable or beneficial to all systems. You need to specifically develop those practices for the farming system that's to be studied. The other thing is he mentioned that regenerative agriculture can play an important role in climate change through carbon sequestration. And then I think he made a really good point about the need for us to integrate livestock and cropping systems together to really take full advantage of those best management practices that can maximize the value that we obtain from regenerative agriculture. Well, thank you everyone for listening. If you have comments about the podcast or suggestions about future podcasts, please visit our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet. We can also be reached by Instagram at Cows on the Planet or Twitter at Planet underscore Cows. Our next podcast will be Should Meat Be Growing in the Lab? And we'll feature Dr. Andrew Pelling of the University of Ottawa. We need to thank our production team. Carter Potts is our audio engineer and theme music developer. Alison McNaughton and Uvi Abiscaria are working on podcast distribution and trying to expand our, our so far limited fan base. Now for some words from our sponsors, which are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef, and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We're just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing.